This afternoon, I'd really like to reflect on what samadhi looks like as a life practice. I'm sure I'm not the only one here who spends much more time off the cushion than on. And this is, the, this is our invitation and our challenge is to live a, a contemplative life, a life infused with groundedness, with calm abiding, with sensitivity, with empathy, with responsiveness. I think often when people do talk about samadhi and when they think about samadhi, they think about this as something that is prim- primarily reserved for you know, either a retreat environment or for their own sitting practice on the cushion. But my own sense is that is samadhi on the cushion and the cultivation of samadhi off the cushion are mutually dependent. As I mentioned yesterday, you know, we could have some perhaps quite lovely, calm, gathered meditations and then get off the cushion and be you know, quite forgetful about things like attention and intention. We could live a life of, you know, overstimulation, uh, a life governed by, by habit, um, a life governed by busyness and agitation. And then I, I think if this is the nature of how we live, our chances for cultivating calm abiding on the cushion are, are not so great. They're not so great. You know, I think sometimes people see their time on the cushion as a kind of recovery from their life. Um, you know, this is where I get some quiet, you know, is where I get some collectedness, is where I get some silence. But somehow we need to merge these two. You know, so many people speak to me about their practice and not so many people speak to me about their path. And, you know, certainly in the Buddhist teaching of inner development, of a contemplative life, everything is included, you know. Our speech, our actions, our effort, our, our work, you know, everything is included. And for me, it's actually so helpful to, to make that shift into that kind of visioning of a life that, that's cohesive and coherent and you know, where there is a, this linkage between times of stillness and times of engagement. When a samadhi is spoken about, it's spoken about in two ways. And one is, is, is directed attentiveness, directed samadhi, where we're holding as much as we can a very specific object in mind and returning to that object, such as mindfulness of breathing, and it's very directed and dedicated to sustaining the intention with, with one primary object. And then the other thread of samadhi that's spoken about is sometimes referred to as non-directed attention. But an attentiveness or a way of, of connection, a way of, a, so, yeah, a way of attentiveness, which is fluid, which is moving. You know, it's not maintaining one object, but it's actually something that is responsive to where we are and what is going on in our lives, just said. So with directed attention, we have the effort to maintain and sustain 
a single object in a connection with a single object, such as the breath, body, sound. But we don't always have the luxury of being able to do this you know, as we move through the world, as, you, as you're working, as you're caring for children, as you're interfacing with you know, colleagues, as you're uh, needing to make plans. You know, all of that part of a, of a life that's really the life of, of all of us. We don't have the luxury, you know, thinking, well, you know, I'd be looking after my children. Meanwhile, I'm so mindful of breathing, you know, I'm so mindful of breathing. You know, my children are falling off a precipice, you know, <laughs> but I was really mindful of breathing. You know, this is unrealistic in our lives where we live in a world of multiple sensory impressions where there can be much going on around us that we're asked to really attend to it all and not endeavor to, to create some sort of static center, you know, where everything else is secondary in importance. It's not what's meant by non, not what meant, is meant by non-directed attentiveness or samadhi. Yet we do learn that we can indeed move through this world with calmness, wholeheartedly attending to what is most predominant in any moment, and that could be changing moment to moment. So in one moment, we're having a conversation with a colleague. In another moment, we get a telephone call. In another moment, we're asked to produce something. And we can really learn to attend to what is predominant, what is really right in front of us, with the same calmness, the same collectedness that we're endeavoring to cultivate on a cushion. This, in my experience, is a gift to ourselves, and it's a gift to others. You know, how to listen wholeheartedly to another person. This is a gift. We live in a world that is really infused, I feel, with agitation, and agitation is so contagious. You know? It's so contagious. It's so almost so infectious, you know, when you're in the midst of a very agitated environment to, to feel those waves of agitation building up within yourself. Or you're, you're together with someone who is really, you know, overstimulated and overagitated, and you can feel the impact. Huh? And it's appropriate that we feel the impact. But it really is how we meet that impact that is actually so important. We can add something different to that world of agitation and to the world of conditions that we cannot control. The gift of calm abiding. The gift of calm abiding. This is something quite precious. My, my father never, well, none of my family actually know what I do, um, my birth family. They actually don't know what I do. I think they're a little bit afraid of knowing what I do. Um, but they're, they're quite approving because whenever my parents went through a surgery, you know, who do they call? Yeah. Because they know how I'm going to come. You know, my father never before in his life, he, he passed away during COVID, but he, um, he, he used to introduce me to people as, this is my daughter, she's calm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I always found that quite lovely, you know. It's, it's like, this is, this is my identity, you know, this is my job, you know. This is my daughter, she's calm. Um, and it, even though he was probably one of the most agitated people you could ever meet, um, there was something about that that he did really appreciate. 
that he did really appreciate. On the cushion, we, we do develop the skill of attending, of sustaining intention, and of learning to be undiverted. And I think these are the skills that we bring into our lives. Learning to be undiverted, to know there's a real difference between choice and being driven. There's a real difference between responsiveness and impulsiveness. And impulsiveness and being driven lies so much in the, the field of our patterns of reactivity that actually often really don't serve us well. In our lives we, and in the world, we, we do develop the skill of wholeheartedness, the, the intentions of kindness, the intentions of compassion and non-clinging. And we bring those skills onto our cushions. Our reality is that in every moment, we are flooded with a torrent of sensory impressions. Sights, sounds, sensations, um, smells, tastes, thoughts. And most of this, most, the vast majority of this, we do not and cannot control, but yet we are asked to meet it. As I mentioned earlier, we don't live in caves. And we don't choose to live in caves. Even if you lived in a cave, every moment you would be flooded with a torrent of sensory impressions. There's an image that I find really useful in the Buddhist teaching about how our world of experience is being constructed and how we can meet the world of conditions that we don't always control. And the image is of a house with five open windows and an open door. And the windows of the house represent the five you know, familiar sense doors, eyes, ears, you know, uh, taste, touch, sensation, smell. And the window and the door of the house represents the sense door of the mind, which in Buddhist psychology is seen as being another sense door. Now through the open windows and the door of the house flows the world of sensory impression, all the sights, sounds, tastes, touch, smells, and from, and from the sense door of the mind, all of the thoughts. Through the open doors, the open door and the windows of the house flow our responses and reactions. So this is an ongoing process of receiving, responding, receiving, responding, receiving, responding. And what the Buddha suggests is that we seat mindfulness and skillful intention on the window sills and the, and the door sill of the house. This is where we seat mindfulness and skillful intention. We learn we can Although we cannot control what comes in through the sense doors, we do have choices about what flows out. And what flows out can be our world of habit patterns and reactivity, or what flows out can be the, the responses that are really rooted in wise intention, kindness, compassion, empathy, wholeheartedness, listening, the Buddha uses the word, uh, uses so much encouragement um, 
to practice some restraint at our sense doors. This is not about shutting out the world. It's not about becoming defensive, um, but restraint at how we use our sense doors. Being aware of how our sense doors are sometimes operating as the agents of the veiling patterns. You know, our eyes get hungry, you know, when there's craving, we see how hungry our eyes get for, you know, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up, you know, more and more. But the sense doors that can be so guided by the veiling patterns are also the sense doors that can be guided by sensitivity, by clear intentionality, by responsiveness. So the Buddha said, cultivate some restraint. Be aware of how we're using our sense doors. Is it in the service of discontent? Do we find ourselves, you know, just reaching out for more? Or do we find ourselves sometimes, you know, just just guarding the sense doors a little bit? When you sit on the underground, you know, do I really need to read every advert? No. No. Most of it has no relevance to my life whatsoever. Um, And it's just kind of entertainment value, isn't it? It's just kind of entertainment value, you know? I think I'll read that, I'll read up about, you know, this and that, you know. Uh, insurance I'm never going to buy, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, it's just entertainment value, as if, as if we are somehow allergic to stillness. You know? If there's a kind of allergy to stillness. So to practice some restraint, to really be aware of how we use our sensors. It was raised in, in the period this morning, you know, or yesterday, you know, about being here, yes, about being here, and you know, how I could spend an entire walking period, you know, learning who is who's in every class, you know, who's their teacher, you know, what they're doing this week, you know. Oh, I could just walk, you know. Practicing some restraint at the sense doors is a way, really, of protecting the well-being of our mind. It's a way of, of stepping out of cycles of agitation. We can learn to perceive the world with care and appreciation, but also with restraint. I, I know that's not terribly, terribly popular word in our culture. In our culture, um, I remember teaching in Italy, and I don't know if it's true, but the translator told me that there is no whole positive translation of the word restraint in Italian. I don't know if it's true that that all the all the translations have a sort of punitive, you know, controlling, suppressing association, rather than something that is guided by wisdom. But what I see in, in the in the path and in the practice is restraint is often the forerunner of renunciation. Hmm? Renunciation again, another charged word, you know, renouncing something or letting go. But it's, it's the forerunner of unbinding. You know, the, the actual translation of renunciation uh, is actually more about generosity. It's more concerned with generosity than, than dropping something. It's more concerned with how to be generous. You know, and, and this whole theme of, of renunciation, of unbinding, is so central to the path of awakening. And it's not about, you know, commanding yourself to let go of things. You know? I mean, we can cultivate simplicity. 
We can cultivate what is needed. But we don't command ourselves to let go. I, mean, I, I have been entirely success, unsuccessful in my entire meditative life in letting go of something through agency. I, I've never let go of anything through agency. I mean, I, th I think we could shout at ourselves all day to let go of things, you know. And we have other people shout at us to let go of things, you know. Uh, family members, spouses, friends, you know, you should let go of that. Um, it, it's not an act of agency, is it? It, it? it is actually, the unbinding comes from the cultivation of the healing and the liberating. The unbinding comes from, you know, the, those, that willingness to be generous in all ways. So restraint is, is something to be cultivated. The Buddha speaks as, as um, of wise attention at not grasping at the sensory impression or the associations with it. Okay, that, that to me is a really interesting one. Not clinging to the sensory impression or the associations with it. You, know, you go out into your walking period, you know, you, you see an airplane in the sky not grasping at the sensory impression or the associations with it. Oh, it means I don't look at the airplane in the sky and say, oh, airplane, oh, planes are flying again. Oh, I wonder where I'm going to go, you know. Or I remember my last flight on, on, on a plane, you know. And Oh, people shouldn't be flying, you know, it's polluting and killing the world. You know, not grasping at the sensory impression or the associations with it. That's, that's quite a skill. Hmm? That's quite a skill. Um, it means about stepping out of the habit pattern of narrative building, of storytelling about everything we see, hear, taste, touch, sense in the body, not grasping at the sensory impression or the associations with it. Because this is the f fuel for story building. It's the fuel for self-building. It's how we begin to get lost in the proliferation and the perpetual that agitates us so deeply. A sight is a sight, a sound is a sound, a sensation is a sensation, a taste is a taste. Can be appreciated, can be responded to with wholeheartedly and with care. It doesn't ask for a story. I think what samadhi does, you know, that inner collectedness, I feel it almost allows the story to be told to us rather than us telling the story. You know? I can sense the sensation in the body and I can allow that sensation to actually tell its own story. You know? I don't have to say, oh, that's my, my, my painful leg you know, with one I broke last year you know, and I, I might be getting weak again or I'm getting arthritis there. You know? Let the story come to us, the sight, the sound beginning to develop that kind of receptivity uh, rather than grasping at the sense impression and the associations with it. It's almost as if we have the front door open, the wholehearted sensing, and we have the back door open too, that it just, the sensory impressions are just not sticking huh, through clinging. I think in the, in the midst of a life filled with <clears throat> responsibilities and expectations and doing, you know, we all engage in doing, 
The cultivation of calm abiding and inner collectedness offers a way of living that is graceful, that is responsive, and that is uncluttered. Uncluttered. Cultivating samadhi in our lives, I think, is, is really challenging because we, we see how much we are habit-driven and impulse-driven. It is challenging, but it's deeply rewarding. And I think to cultivate samadhi in our lives often asks of us to change some of our life habits. You know? Be willing to change some of our life habits. You know? If I'm you know, accustomed to, to getting home and you know, immediately reaching for the glass of wine or turning on the TV or you know, getting busy with something, what is it like just to return home and find some stillness? You know, what is it like if I sit on a train not to feel that I immediately need to fill up that time with how much I can get done uh, you know, on my tablet or how much I can read or how much I can catch up on on my phone? What is it like sometimes just to sit on a train? Hmm? When I'm together with someone else, you know, can I learn to bring wholehearted listening to that? rather than to be so busy and needing to tell my story over and over again. I think inner change, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me in the, in the Buddhist path of the, the looking at the ways that change actually happens. And, you know, I think, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, we often think that change is going to be an inside, inside out process, you know, that we're going to come to a lot of insights or some understanding, and then our lives are going to change in response to that. And some of our habit patterns are going to change in response to that. But in in the Buddhist teaching, change is a two-way process. Sometimes we change our lives, and that changes our minds. It changes our hearts. It's why, you know, things like, like ethical commitments, you know, we may not feel like not harming something, you know, but we commit to not harming. And eventually, at, at some point, our hearts and minds catch up that this actually might be a wise way to live, you know. Um, so we actually set those commitments, you know, when, when you come on retreats, for example, you know, uh, think of the behavioral changes you make if you go on a face-to-face retreat, you know, how you, you're responsive, responsive to your life being governed by a bell and a schedule, you know, you're responsive to, to turning up in the hall, you know, and, and none of us as teachers would ever say to people, well, you know, only come and sit if you really feel like it, you know, and if you don't feel like it, don't bother, do something else, you know, only go out into your walking path if you really, really feel like it, you know, and, and you know, if you don't feel like it, do something else. And we don't go and check up on anybody. We don't drag anybody out of their beds at six o'clock. And lo and behold, people turn up and they sit and they walk and they probably don't feel like it a lot of times. But there's a kind of behavioral commitment that's made you know, that I'm going to do this as wholeheartedly as I can, never mind what I feel like. Hmm? And that commitment actually begins to change how the mind is and how the heart is. One of the... um, Oh, do we find ourselves too busy? Yeah, do we find ourselves too busy to support an inner calm abiding? You know, do we need and can we make some adjustments? So we have a little bit more space in our lives. 
you know, a little bit more stillness in our lives. I think all of these changes are, you know, they're life changes where sometimes we're just, just a little bit questioning some of the habits of our lives, really questioning do they actually support an, an inner calm abiding? Or did, are we always struggling with a kind of tension of, of wanting to be more awake, wanting you know, a deeper sense of collectedness, and yet not providing the conditions in which that can really thrive and deepen? I think this is a huge investigation you know, for us all. You know? And sometimes there's no choices. You know, we have no choice about you know, how many responsibilities we have or how much we're, we're asked to take care of. Sometimes we have no choices. But we actually learn to respond wholeheartedly to what is right in front of us. What is right in front of us? And in developing <clears throat> samadhi as a life practice, sometimes it's really useful, I find, to, to notice beginnings and endings in our day, rather than accumulating a lot of unfinished business. You know, we have so many beginnings and endings in a day. You know, we begin a meal, we end a meal. We begin a telephone call, we end a telephone call. You know, we begin a commute to work, we arrive. You know, we have so many beginnings and endings in a single day. And if we actually don't really notice that one, something ends, it might not be complete, it might not be finished, but it's ended in the sense that we are no longer attending to it because we're attending to something else. And if we don't know those endings, we tend to drag all of that incompletion from moment to moment to the end of the day to a point where we feel exhausted and stressed and, and you know, anything but collected. Learning to pause in the endings, even if it's one breath, you know, even one step is actually really noticing, really acknowledging a transition is happening in what we are attending to just now. And to make that transition <clears throat> as fully as we can. Um, I, I gave up hurrying a few years ago. Um, I thought it was a useful thing to give up um, as a life intention for a year. Um, and I, it was such a relief that I, I, I never take it up again. Um, and I can still move quickly, but I'm not hurrying. It's a state of mind. It's a state of mind. When the Buddha speaks about practicing samadhi in our lives, he, he speaks about this one fortunate attachment when we don't, those who don't lean backwards into the past, into what has already gone by with longing or regret, those who don't lean forward into the future with anticipation or anxiety, those who don't obsess in the present, these are the, these are the people who have one fortunate attachment, the treasuring of where they are, the treasuring of where they are. <clears throat> We are always uh, we are always practicing something. I mentioned this earlier. We're always practicing something, and we have choices about what we can practice, what we will practice. Are we practicing the veiling factors? You know, do we see that? Are we practicing them by by feeding them with, with thought and rumination? Are we practicing collectedness and gatheredness? You know, are we practicing unhappiness? You know, by feeding discontent, you know, by, by, by feeding obsession and rumination, are we actually practicing 
happiness, ne? by our willingness to be generous, to, for, by our willingness for non-clinging, you know, by our willingness to, to cultivate what is possible in any moment, really sensing what we are practicing and what we are cultivating. To know the difference between practicing the veiling factors and practicing samadhi and all of its supports, to really know the difference in any moment of our day. And then there's also a question of can we be comfortable with moments of non-doing? It sounds very attractive in theory, but in reality, sometimes we experience moments of non-doing as, as something missing, you know? as, as boredom, as nothing happening. You know? So we get busy. So we get busy. Can we appreciate the taste of wholeheartedness and stillness in our bodies and minds and make peace with the unarguables? Make peace with the, with the reality that we, as human beings we are vulnerable. We will lose things. Things will change in ways that we don't always welcome. And it's not emotionally neutral. You know, can we, can we put down the arguments of saying, you know, this isn't fair, this shouldn't be happening, it should, I've done something wrong? Can we make peace even with the difficult that it is part of our lives? Samadhi may be a choice. Victor Frankl, and some of you will be familiar with this quote, there's a concentration camp survivor, and he wrote that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And in our power to choose lies our growth and our freedom. And I, I feel that everything we, we do in this practice of samadhi, of mindfulness, Everything we do is about slowing things down just a little bit and making that space between stimulus and response so that we do actually have choices rather than being governed or rather than being pushed by impulse, that we have choices about how we respond and choosing what is to be cultivated and what it's not helpful to cultivate. This is a journey, as the Buddha put it, of swimming, swimming against the tide. Swimming against the tide. And you know, he refers to that as a noble journey of swimming against the tide. Sometimes we're swimming against the tide of our societal norms, you know, where we have so many voices, receive so many messages, you know, about getting busier, becoming more perfect, you know, uh, getting, achieve, possessing as much as we can. Sometimes we're swimming against the tide of our societal norms. But I think that the biggest tide we're swimming against is the tide of our own habit patterns. That we're actually, that's the tide that we're really swimming against moment to moment. And it's not about being judgmental. It's not about blaming or being frustrated, but it's appreciating the size of the cloth. But every moment makes a difference. Every moment makes a difference. Every moment there's that choice of cultivating collectedness rather than cultivating agitation. It makes a difference. 
We're cultivating a mind that's a, a friend. So I think there's really so much, so important to consider how we would cultivate that greater sense of gatheredness and integration and collectedness in our days. This will profoundly impact how, how this, these qualities develop and deepen both in our formal practice and in our lives. And it makes, it makes a difference to ourselves. It makes a difference to others. It makes a difference to the world that we live in. I'm going to go back to the quote that I read to you early on <clears throat> when the Buddha says, just as the river Ganges flows towards the ocean, slopes towards the ocean, inclines towards the ocean, so too a practitioner who cultivates and develops samadhi flows, slopes, and inclines towards awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.